Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Hilaritas Podcast. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join me as we explore the vast world of iconic writer, psychedelic psychologist, rebel philosopher, and self-proclaimed agnostic mystic, Robert Anton Wilson. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. In this episode, I discuss Reiki and therapy, Tales from Falcon Press, and other things with Falcon Press co-founder Nicholas Starcher. If you've been reading Robert Anton Wilson for a while now, you're probably familiar with Wilson's primary publisher from roughly 1983 until his passing and for even a few years after, New Falcon Press, originally known as just Falcon Press, and more recently as Original Falcon Press. But do you know about the mysterious folks behind the Falcon? I asked my new friend, Google Bard, to give me some quotes for Robert Anton Wilson on New Falcon Press. I received a quote that was plausible enough, but then it wrote, Falcon Publications is a small press publisher that specializes in books on alternative spirituality, philosophy, and the occult. The company was founded in 1978 by Wilson and his friend, Carrie Thornley. Huh? So then I asked Google Bard directly, what is New Falcon Press? It replied, New Falcon Press is a small publisher of books on the occult mysticism and esotericism. It was founded in 1979 by Christopher S. Hyatt and J. Marvin Spingelman and is based in Tempe, Arizona. Okay, a little warmer. I then turned to ChatGPT, who told me, New Falcon Press is an independent publishing company known for its focus on esoteric and occult literature. It was founded by Samuel Weiser in 1977. Huh? So then I went to ask ChatGPT if Wilson had anything to say about New Falcon. It replied, in a 1987 interview, Wilson said of New Falcon Press, I think New Falcon is one of the most important publishers in the world today. I was unable to find this 1987 interview, but I did find a 1988 interview where Wilson claimed Falcon Press was actually owned by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. In response to the interview's question around a Falcon Press joke printed at the bottom of their book list at the time, is Falcon Press really owned by Robert Anton Wilson? Today's podcast may or may not address any of this, but I'm super excited to share my chat with Falcon Press OG co-founder Nicholas Starcher. Nick Starcher, welcome to the Laritas podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I know you, we've corresponded a little bit. I doubt you even remember over the years, but I mean, I know you as the man behind the scenes at Falcon Press, which is uh, what on its third iteration now with the original Falcon? Well, yeah, I suppose in a sense that's true. We started off with the name Falcon Press back 1979, 1980 timeframe. And then due to a minor difference with another publisher we changed it to new falcon publications and then after dr hyatt died in 2008 we started the original falcon press which is what we are now nice and you've been partnered at least for those first two steps with christopher hyatt how did you come to meet him i met hyatt 
as Alan Miller, his uh, birth name, in 1971. I was introduced to him by Jack Willis, who I had known for some years before that. And uh, I was looking for a therapist. Jack recommended Alan. I went and saw him and worked with him for a number of years doing Reiki and therapy, even interned with him for a while doing therapy on some other people. Wasn't my cup of tea, but it was very interesting to do. Was that your first exposure in therapy? Is doing Reiki in therapy? Is that when I was a teenager, I did some talk therapy for a time, but that was pretty much it. Right. And as a practitioner, though, you just dabbled with some Reiki in therapy and Yeah. Did some talk therapy with some some patients while I was interning and also some Reiki work, which I preferred. The talk therapy I didn't find terribly interesting. And I don't know that I really have a knack for it. Yeah, it might take a certain type of uh, constitution to just sit and listen. Well, largely, I did find it boring. I think it was Lecter who said something like, uh, <laughs> he's just a garden variety manic depressive. <laughs> <laughs> you've seen one, you've seen them all. Yeah, pretty much. So you knew Jack Willis? Yes. In fact, and... I worked for him. Okay. This was in Chicago, 1968, 69 timeframe. I had just uh, bailed from graduate school, having thought I would perhaps become a PhD chemist. But I found that I liked learning about chemistry a whole lot more than I liked doing it. So I bailed mm-hmm. out of that and uh, got a job for a time as a chemist working for a chemical company, but that didn't go so well. So ended up uh, working for Jack in a computer firm that he had started. And I was uh, operating as his office manager. So that was my first introduction to computers and certainly Jack. And then we lost track of each other after we parted ways in Chicago around 1970. After a time, I moved to California and by gum, there he was. I found him by accident one time, and we got reacquainted, and that's when he introduced me to Alan Miller. Okay, so the, I didn't. I was not aware they had a relationship. I know of Jack because he has a. There's an ebook floating around out there of his like Reiki and therapy explained. I don't know what it's remember what it's titled, but that's been around. Yeah, a home guide or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Yeah. I've read pieces of it. Alan learned Reichen therapy from Israel Regardi, Francis. Right. And Jack did as well. Okay, but wow. From what I understand, I never got this straight from Jack, but from, from Alan, Francis didn't teach Jack everything. Hmm. Uh, Jack was uh, a bit rigid. Loved right. the man dearly, but he had a very odd and wonderful mind, but he was weirder than a, well, he was weird. (laughs) Alan used to call him Mr. Morality. Okay, interesting. Well, certainly I've looked through his book in in detail in a few sections, and it's, um, I mean, it's very much hardcore body-centered Reiki and therapy, as I understand it. And one of the only things out there that really gets into the weeds like that versus Hyatt mixes in uh, other psychological systems and and the kind of the Golden Dawn, maybe not the Golden Dawn stuff, but the occult stuff with his writings, the mystical, I'll say. How about that? 
Certainly so, in some of the writings, uh, he did that. But later, when we were doing the Radical Undoing videos, right, right, that we we dropped all of the mystical occult concepts and notions entirely. A lot of the earlier work was structured the way he did with chakras and whatever other mystical qualities, primarily because he was trying to get away from practice that involved his license. And he was still mm. licensed many, many years after he'd actually quit practice in California. He still was maintaining the license. And at times he wanted to avoid any problems with the licensing board. And other times he wanted to stick his nose in it, stick their nose in it and rub it <laughs> in too. So it went back and forth a lot on that point. And he thought, well, perhaps he could develop something that was more an amalgam of things because Reiki therapy particularly has never been very prominent. None of the body centered therapies have been, but uh, it really became unacceptable to the licensing boards in the mid 70s to uh, to late 70s, early 80s. And a lot of the other interactions that uh, therapists typically had with patients, dual relationships, for example, they started clamping down on. Mm -hmm. And so he's tended to, to distance himself from that. But after a while, it's like, fuck it. Here's what it is. And let's present it the way it actually is and the way it's actually done. All right. That, the very hands-on nature of Reiki and therapy, I think, butts right up against the code of ethics and, and a lot of the counseling psychologies, right? Well, you know, new patient comes in the door and it's like, okay, take off your clothes. <laughs> right, right away, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> take off your clothes and lie on the table. Yep. So, no, the boards weren't very happy with that. As far as I can tell, there are few, if any, Reikian therapists still practicing in, in the country, at least visibly. Alexander Lowen's system still exists, and there's still a center for it, and that's as close to Reikian therapy as anyone's going to get. And, and from what I understand, his, his stuff is just fine. He worked with Reich. And a lot of his techniques are straight out of Reiki therapy. So if somebody's looking for that kind of material and wants to work with the therapist, then I would say that that's the place to go. Yeah, I don't know how much more common Lowen's bioenergetics even is these days. I don't um, either. I have found a website or two for it, including one by the bioenergetics people but I haven't really gone too deeply into it. I've suggested it to a number of folks, never had any feedback. Yeah, it seems like you can uh, pursue a path on the more physical plane with like Reiki, and, or not Reiki, and, um, Rolfing, and uh, some of the physical manipulation like that, even chiropractic, but it's not really psychologically oriented necessarily. And then- Rolfing um, gets thrown in there a lot. Uh, yeah. with bioenergetics and, and Reiki and therapy, but it really is an entirely different intent, and certainly the methodology is very different. There again, I, I have no idea if Rolfing's still around. I mean, Ida Rolfing is very gone. much, yeah. I mean, I live south of Boulder, which is the homeland of Rolfing, and uh, it's it's doing quite well, I think, but it is different. I learned about it in, through John Lilly and I believe the book Center of the Cyclone. And he talked about getting Rolfed and they were working on his feet 
and an old injury came up and he sort of relived. I think he had an injury to his foot from an axe or something crazy like that that came out through a rolfing session. And I have been through quite a bit of rolfing myself and it does touch into emotional material, but there's no, or it can, but there's no real methodology for dealing with that material through the rolfer, let's say. But what I have seen a lot, what's become a small but growing movement is body-centered psychotherapy, uh, somatic experiencing by, I believe it's Peter Levine, and sensory motor psychotherapy with Pat Ogden. And those are pretty legit, but it's diff- very different from Reikian approaches. Hmm. Sounds um, like something I might want to take a look at. It's not an area I'm familiar with. Yeah, it's um, even, you know, the cognitive behavioral crowd started uh, getting on the mindfulness bandwagon a while back. And we're starting to establish themselves in that as far as evidence-based therapies. And, and they were starting to get interested in the body. I don't I haven't really been tuned into that movement there, but they're they're catching on slowly but surely, it seems like, but still very different from that very hands-on Reikian go for it approach. Well, I, I think that a lot of the people that are developing techniques are not themselves trained therapists and that's all more the pity that the trained therapists can't do that kind of work because of legalities and yet that kind of work has certainly shown some some great potential just as we see that uh, certain chemicals these days are finally getting a little bit of uh, a touch ecstasy and lsd and ayahuasca and such. But for how many decades has this stuff been off the table because of legalities? Right. I believe uh, when Michael Pollan was writing his book, How to Change His Mind, it really popularized these uh, the psychedelic thing. That question came up and everybody's response was, it would be oversimplistic to blame Timothy Leary. And then they would go on to blame Timothy Leary. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, Tim was was a fascinating guy in a whole bunch of ways. And most people, I don't think, really know too much about his background. His name isn't even recognized hardly these days, which is fascinating. Yeah, I, I like to talk about the Eighth Circuit model, and I bring up his name. And, and usually there's uh, some sort of snickers or laughter in the crowd when I'm speaking. And I, I get it because that's really where people were left off is he was like the crazy one from the sixties that went over the top with the the whole psychedelic thing. And now the kids don't even know who he is. Yeah. No, they don't really have a clue and uh, much less what he was actually promulgating at the time. Cause uh, you know, back in the fifties, he was working in pretty much mainstream psychology and among other things, developed some interesting psychological tests, which later when he was thrown into the slammer, he yeah. was given so that they could determine which slammer to throw him in. That was of course a hoot and a half. These were tests he himself had developed. Okay. But then later on, when he started to do the work on, uh, on LSD back in the sixties or so, he had, as you know, appeared before Congress, testified, said, you know, this stuff is beneficial and here's how we should do it. And they ignored him completely and just made it all illegal. 
And so here it is now, 50, 60 years later, and we're starting to finally come around to, oh, maybe, maybe, worth looking at. Okay. Yeah. From what I understand with MAPS, the uh, FDA is is uh, finally interested in listening, mainly because everything else is not working, and they're they're desperate for something. So it's like well, I'm not so, so sure that they're really interested in having something that works. <laughs> <laughs> they've, got, they've got too much investment in what doesn't work. Right. They don't. Maybe they don't realize what they're unleashing here. It works too well. Well. I, I certainly hope that it goes the direction it's going, but I can easily see that that can change. Politics gets into too much stuff. And, you know, the, the notion is people who get into politics want power. That's what they want. And they don't want to let it go. And it doesn't matter what the nature of the power is. It doesn't matter the areas in which it's exercised. Hyatt said it extremely well. There is one and only one law. Obey. Yeah. Interesting. What's behind that doesn't matter. And if you look through cultures, look through through history, look through what's on the planet currently, there's enormous differences from one place to another, one culture to another, one piece of geography to another over what is acceptable or unacceptable behaviors. What's okay, well, here in Arizona, for example, I can walk around with firearms openly, not openly. I don't need any permission from anybody. But if I go to the California border and just move two feet into California, I am now committing crimes. Mm. So just at that level, I've always wondered what happens if I put one foot in California, one foot in Arizona. Is that half a crime or? Yeah, I don't know. They'll throw half of you in jail. And certainly if you move into other parts of the world, you find very, very different laws and requirements. But all of them come down to the same thing. We made the rules. Your job is to obey. Mm. And we can change the rules at a moment's notice, but your job still remains the same. Obey. So this brings me to kind of some of the core learnings I got from Hyatt about Oh, what I'll call the extreme individual, where it's you're kind of obeying your own laws. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but your own internal dictates, so to speak, rather than what society puts on you. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And of course, there's nothing nothing new in, in the sense that uh, what he was saying has been said by, by people for eternity, as far back as we have recorded history, is the idea that you are autonomous, you're an individual, you follow your own rules, do what that will shall be the whole of the law, Buddhist positions, you can go on and on. But largely, it's a minority. So if you look even at sure. things like the Thelema movement of Crowley's, they have all the words, but what they don't have is any action. Mm. Go, go find the OTO people doing magic wrong not gonna find it you're gonna have some gnostic mass and that's about it you look at the buddhists and now it's a crime to sass the buddha rather than if you see the buddha on the road kill him very very different once you get an organization going it's all over yeah yeah institutions tend to uh ruin the party it's power again 
Yeah, interesting. And th- that too is one of Hyatt's themes is that people have a will to power, very much Nietzschean. And indeed, uh, Hyatt was a student of Nietzsche's and uh, very much thought he was one of the best psycho philosophers ever, mm. maybe the best. But the, the idea that you have autonomy has been around forever, but always at the fringes, always at the outside. And then it gets adopted by some kind of mainstreamy thing. And it's all gone again mm. until someone resurrects it in another form. It's one of those things that feels very shadowy to me, too. Like we might think we have free will, but we don't really realize how much of a bundle of habits we really are. I don't know. Interesting. I think a lot of people get caught up in the delusion of free will, but aren't really exercising their own autonomy. Well, free will has always been an interesting subject for me. I mean, I go back to when I studied it in undergraduate work at uh, university. And one of the things that, that I came up with by reading Ayn Rand was the notion that whether you do or do not have free will is by definition impossible to determine. Mm. However, you have no choice when it comes down to whether you operate as if it exists. You have no choice, but whether you... So the assumption Go ahead is that... and try to operate your life on the principle of determinism. Whoa. I never thought about it like that. That's uh throws a wrench in things. It does. You know, whether you like it or not, you operate as if you have free will. Because you cannot operate differently. And like I said a moment ago, if you try to operate your life, run your life on the basis of a principle of determinism, which is the opposite of free will, you can't do it. Now, it may be that determinism, the billiard ball model of the universe, is factually correct. But we can never know that because you can't prove something that is determined in your brain. Oh, yes, I concluded determinism's right. Well, wait a minute, that conclusion was determined. You didn't figure it out. You don't have any way of accumulating knowledge. In fact, the word knowledge, the whole notion of epistemology, gets thrown out as soon as you accept determinism. I have to say that's throwing me for quite the loop right now. (laughs) Something more for another time. Yeah. Well, so let's circle back for a second. While we chew on that, you knew Jack. You met Hyatt. Somewhere along the line, you decided to start a publishing house. Yeah. That was instigated by Regardi. It was an interesting confluence of of events that took place. Hyatt had just essentially quit being a shrink. In fact, he gave his businesses to Jack, just gave them to him. Jack was not a good businessman. (laughs) He ran those into the ground, just like he ran the computer business into the ground where I first met him. Wonderful guy, brilliant, too damn rigid. But getting back to DeFalcon, so Regardi had just sued Llewellyn over some of the titles that they were publishing. And I won't get into the details of the lawsuit, but there's some fun stories in there too. His nephew was the lawyer on the deal. And suffice it to say, his nephew was not what I would call a great lawyer. What ended up was a settlement where 
Bugatti got back the rights to the worst of the books, the least popular of the books, and Llewellyn ended up with the best. Mm. Now Bugatti's got these rights in his hands, and he comes to Alan and says, hey, would you like to publish her? And Alan says, sure. I'm having absolutely no experience and background in publishing at all. But so what? Next thing you know, Falcon Press exists. And we, for the first few years, were actually producing the books ourselves. Not just typesetting, but literally printing the books and doing wow. everything from getting a manuscript through actual printing. And the only thing we didn't do was binding. So we had printing presses. They were, there was like a one color press and we were doing four color work on it, which the experts had later on told us that's impossible. You can't do that. Mm. But if you look at say magic without tears from the old days, the original editions of that, that's a four color job that was done on a one color press. We just, we're doing stuff. We even brought late people in later on to tell us, you know, how can we make things better? And they looked at it and says, you're doing as well as anybody. So we kept going. Eventually, we were able to find uh, outside printing facilities at a reasonable cost. That's what drove us in the first place to getting our own equipment. And we were finding that a lot of the, the uh, quotes we were getting were just insane. So that's why we got the equipment, but eventually we established ourselves better and were able to get get uh, outside printing at a good cost. And then we didn't need the equipment anymore. And there's a wonderful story that I may tell sometime, may have told sometime about how we sold that equipment <laughs> in Sedona. In Sedona. Yeah. That seems like a hell of an undertaking. It was. Just to start your own press, but to do your own printing and... Yeah, of course, those days, too, the, the whole process was a lot more involved than it is today. These days, you use a computer, do the typesetting with whatever piece of software you like, and then that produces, at, the next step is a PDF, which goes to your printer, and they handle it from there. Right. But that wasn't the case back in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, even. You had to typeset, and we had a, des a designated typesetter. That's all it was. And it used eight-inch floppies. You could get, like, a page on a floppy. And it was a photo typesetter, which meant that the information on the, on the floppy, after you keyed it in on this tiny little screen, which was not a WYSIWYG kind of screen, you couldn't see what the hell it was really going to look like, that then had to go through a mechanical system that had a wheel in it, very much like the wheel on a Selectric typewriter, if you remember those from forever. Yeah, yeah, like a ball yeah. or, or a, a little, wheel. Yeah, a disc, and, and, and that would send a light through, and that would go on a special paper, and then the paper had to be developed, much like you would if you were using photography back in those days, and then those pages would be held up on a, on a clothesline to dry, and then they'd be pasted up, and it was a whole process. Photography came in after that. Plate making, where the photography then made in metal plate, which then finally went on to the, the printing press itself. It was a whole ordeal. So, And we had all those pieces and parts. 
We had two printing presses. We had the photographic equipment, very stinky uh, chemicals to process the paper and all of that. I'm so glad to be done with that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that I'd still be doing this if I had to do it that way. Well, that, wow, again, quite the process. And so eventually you got out of the equipment side of the business. Do you want to tell that story? Well, sure, why not? When we finally were able to get computers that had at least rudimentary typesetting capabilities, and we started with Macs and still use Macs today, mm. people were using all kinds of exotic software over time, PageMaker and others. We just stayed with Microsoft Word, and we found from the beginning of time to now that Word does everything we need to. Yeah, there are a couple of little things that you can do with some of the more exotic page layout programs, but not enough to get us all that interested. And Word, at least, still is around after all these years where others like PageMaker are gone, gone. I still have some of the files, but I had no idea how I would actually get to them if I wanted to. Anyway, when we finally were able to get onto computers and no longer needed to do all the other processes, that all we would do is send stuff to a printer. Mm. And, and stuff, by the way, in those days was physical paper. We would print out the book on a, well, it was in the early days, a 300 DPI laser printer, and later where we could get more more densities to it. But that would go to the printer and they would do the photography work and the plate making and all the rest. And we were happily done with that. Fortunately, even that stuff is is long gone as well. But once that happened, we were able to produce things a lot more quickly and a lot more easily Mm. because we were focused more on the manuscripts and the typesetting and book design, things along those lines rather than all the the hind-end stuff. So here we had all this equipment sitting in the garage at our bunker in Sedona. And, well, time to get rid of it, we thought. So we advertised that we had this stuff available. And somebody who shall remain nameless in Sedona got in touch with us and said that she wanted to buy the stuff for a magazine that she was going to create. We said, okay, let's put the deal together. Here's how much we want. She said, well, I'm not entirely sure that I really want to buy this stuff. I said, well, here's what we can do. We can do it on a contingency basis, which is to say, you give us some money to hold the equipment. And after 60 days, you either pay the balance or we keep the money you gave us and put it back in the market. That's a very common technique for dealing with this sort of thing. So the weeks went by, and we don't hear from her. And after a month or so, I got back in touch with her and said, well, you know, the deadline's coming up in about a month, so you need to decide what you're going to do. Well, my partner this and my partner that. Okay. Doesn't matter. Not my problem. Just want to let you know things are coming to an end. Few more weeks go by, same thing. Here we are at the bitter end. And she's still saying, partner this, partner that. And I said, I'm sorry, but this is business. And she said, Oh, 
business. All these years, I've been living in the land of light. It sounds like a very Sedona thing to say. It sure was. I mean, it's it's great when you, when you come up with an archetype that's just so perfect. And to me, that that is. I've been living in the land of light. Oh, yeah. Business. I've heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that on TV. Wow. So anyway, she did buy the stuff. <laughs> oh. And I... I, I believe she produced a uh, a magazine out of that for a while, and I've lost track. I have no idea if <laughs> what what all ever happened out of that. Anyway, that was a lot of years ago. Yeah, and somewhere around in there, Robert Anton Wilson came into the fold. He did. Nineteen eighty four, I think, was the first okay. time we had contact with him, and he was introduced to us by Regardi. Hmm. And at that time, he had interest in publishing Prometheus Rising. And he had taken it to, I think it was Jeremy Tarcher, who said he didn't want to publish the book. So he brought it to us. And in about 30 seconds, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that, 30 seconds, we said, sure. Mm. And so we wrote a contract, started working on it. During that that negotiating time, that contract time, Torture came back and said, yeah, uh, we'll do it. Eh, too bad, too late, done. And that was the beginning of our relationship with Bob. And Prometheus was the first of, I think, 20 books that we eventually did. That was, by the way, done on a computer, but it was still old-style typesetting. And Alan did the typesetting on that thing which was interesting because he was somewhat dyslexic. So years later, I decided to go through the book again and retypeset it. And I found something like one significant error per page on average. Yeah. The whole book, just all kinds of typos and things. And, and that was us that had done that. But what fascinated me at the time was that no one had ever given us any feedback along those lines. No one said, ah, this book's got too many errors in it. I want my money back. Too many problems with... No, people were just happy with it. So we learned that A-plus quality was foolish to, to go for because no one really cared. Interesting. And you could put all your attention in to get those last few typos out. But meanwhile, it's taking you away from like doing a different book. So we figured B plus, fine. And that's pretty much what we aim for and still aim for. Our books are not as pretty as some of people out there. We probably have a few more typos than some do. But uh, no one seems to care, especially not me. I care <laughs> to get the books out, get them to the world so people can have them. We did have, just as, a, as an interesting aside, a few years ago, we had a book that we, we produced and shortly after we released it, the author was very upset because he had found a mistake in the book that one particular place in the book referenced chapter three, but it really should have been chapter two. Ooh. Ooh. And he was just all upset that this was going to ruin the sales of the book. <laughs> Authors have a different view on things than we do. Suffice it to say. Yeah. It's their creative but work. getting back to yeah. Bob, yeah. We, we never did any real editing on his books. He produced stuff that was ready to go. 
Now, I must admit that sometimes his books did have errors that he had missed, and we would pick up a few of those. But for the lo- in large part, we were not really writing books. We were not doing any feedback to him of, you know, this is unintelligible, because it wasn't. We've had plenty of authors where he had to say things like that. But Bob was that good an author that the stuff just came out and it was ready to go. So after Prometheus, all kinds of interesting things popped up, Cosmic Trigger being one of the keys. Oh, yeah. There, too, we got it because he wasn't being paid royalties. So he got the rights back, wrote it to us. (laughs) And then there's all these others that came out. Several of the books were original, but several also had been published elsewhere and might have gone through one print run and done. And then he brought it to us when his other publisher said, no, we're really not going to reprint the thing. Yeah, well, Sex and Drugs must have been one of his first. It was. uh, And he had done that originally with Playboy. Right, right. And it it was Sex, Drugs, and Magic, or Sex, Drugs, and the Occult. I forget how. Sex, sex, Drugs, and Magic, yeah. When Playboy did it, they dropped off the magic part, just Sex and Drugs. Then eventually we picked that up and left the title alone. I'm not sure why, come to think of it. But that's a book that, that I've always enjoyed. I thought it was a wonderful book, and it sold reasonably well. Prometheus was still pretty much at the top of the line, though. Always sold the best. Mm. It was a marvelous, marvelous book. Still is. Yeah, and so that would have been, what, you said 84, you started talking, I think Prometheus came out in 85, and that would have gone all the way through to, uh, what, Email to the Universe, whenever that finally came out as his last, I think? That sounds about right. Uh, I'd have to go pull one off the shelf and check the copyright page, but I think that's like 90s, 98, maybe, maybe not that late. I would think it's even later, like 03? Possibly. Um, I'd go back to my shelf. I still have copies yeah. on, my, on my shelf. I think it was SOG that was the late 90s, and then the uh, email in the final days there came out. So that's quite no, a run. Nobody really has any idea where titles like SOG came from. <laughs> just bob's imagination no um t-s-o-g was a play on z-s-o-g right which z is zionist right <laughs> and yeah, yeah. that was a play on you know some some folks who didn't like jews uh were referring to the zionist something <laughs> Right. It seemed to be done in good faith, but there's a little chatter out there about how it's in poor taste, that title. but Yeah, well, that's today's world, where anything that anybody can, even by complete insanity, think of as poor taste must be obliterated. That's the world we live in today. Right. Words that sound like objectionable words must be obliterated, even if they have nothing to do with it. Uh, symbols that look like other symbols must be obliterated. Uh, my misinterpretations are sufficient reason to obliterate. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they can play with stuff like that. I mean, there's folks rewriting books right now. Yeah. And yeah. To me, that is a line that cannot be crossed. And whether you're talking Dr. Seuss or uh, any of the several others that we've heard about just recently, it's complete and utter insanity to me. 
Let's bodlerize things. It just seems like when you do that, you kind of pretend like that problem never existed. And you're just setting yourself up. And when I say that problem, like racism or whatever it is, you know, and then you just kind of pretend that we don't want to talk about it. You set yourself up for another round of it. What I find fascinating is that the very same people who are doing that kind of thing with uh, the result that, that you just expressed, that let's just pretend it never existed, are then the same people who are yelling and screaming that these things are not being taught in school. Right. But I, uh, I gave up on hypocrisy a long time ago. I used to have a, a, a real lot of fun pointing out people's hypocrisy, but I've noticed over my lifetime that nobody gives a shit. You can <laughs> say, this is hypocritical as hell, and the result of that is just a shrug. So who cares? I still see that going on with a lot of people. Politics does that all the time. But it's pointless. Nobody cares. Right. Yeah. So, I'm, so I'm hypocritical. Who cares? It seems to go back to that place where we can see it in others, but we don't see it in ourselves, and we don't want to see it in ourselves. Unless you're truly committed to looking at yourself. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if you talk to most people, you just do a quick interview on the street with most people, sit at a bar and meet somebody new and ask them what sort of politics, but not in that way. It's like, you know, for me, for me, Nick, I have one principle of politics. Do not initiate violence. Mm. That's the pure libertarian point of view. Right. And if you say that to people in that way, most people would totally agree with you that that is the fundamental principle behind any other social interactions. So at the core, you might think most people are libertarian. Don't interfere with my life. Don't tread on me. Leave me alone. Until you get down to any specifics like, I don't like that, so we have to do something about that. Right. And that's all it takes. I don't like it. We have to do something about it. And it doesn't mm. matter what we do. We just have to do something, even if mm. it doesn't work. Yeah. I don't know where to go from there. Well, one of the things that I liked about Bob was Guns and Dope Party. Mm. Personally, I like guns and I like dope. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of the Guns and Dope Party. I, I was very happy to see that, of course. Uh, having his symbols for all of that is, is wonderful, too. I would hope someday somebody does some more work in that direction, but I think most of the people that like Bob's work really never liked the idea of the Guns and Dope Party. The Dope Party, sure, but the guns, not so much. That's another one of those touchy subjects in the community, but I I know Richard Ross is still uh, keeps the Guns and Dope Party alive, and the, the I, maybe you're referring to Olga the ostrich as the mascot. Yeah, Olga was great. Yeah, uh, Ross has still got Olga going strong. Oh, good. Making memes on the internet and posting them on Facebook, so... Uh, yeah, there are some things that still hang around. The subgenius folks seem to still be around, which is fascinating to me. I and mean, they've been around for so long, and they still seem to be functioning. Yeah, I, that's one of my next interviews. So I'm, I'm actually, I don't know too much about it. It's always kind of been off on the sideline for me, Ivan, and and that whole scene. But I, I didn't know whether Ivan was still alive. I've, you know, I haven't seen him for years and years. It was proposed to me to talk to him, and that was my first response, is, is he still alive? Yeah. 
I mean, I have to ask that question a lot because everybody I knew back when is as old as I am or more. Right. Too many of us left. Not too many. So Rigotti brought you or introduced you to Bob. Yeah. Uh, and somewhere along the line, Timothy Leary got involved, or I don't know if it was him directly or that was published some of his books. Okay. Yeah. And boy, we got some fun stories there too. This was probably 86, 87. Thereabouts, we're still in Sedona at that time. We, I forget how we found out whether Sue Bob or Tim got us, gave us a call, but he was interested in reprinting some of the stuff that he had done back in prison days. Right. Exopsychology, neuropolitics, things like that. And so Alan and I drive down from Sedona to Phoenix, get on an airplane, fly to L.A., weird stuff going on. Everything from the, the flight numbers, you know, were esoteric numbers, flight 93 or 666 or whatever it might have been. And some weird interaction with a woman while we're renting a car and we end up driving her to uh, Brentwood, which is right Beverly Hills area where, where Tim was living. And then we get out, drop her off. It's still too early for our meeting with Tim. So we decided to go over to sushi bar that we know. And we had some sushi for lunch. Still a little time. We'll take a little walk. And we're walking down Santa Monica Boulevard. And Alan just turns into this random building. Had no idea what was going on. He just turns into the building. We go through the door. And as so many buildings have, they have a plaque with the the tenants. These are you know commercial offices, if you will. And son of a bitch, Jack Willis's name is there. <laughs> He's got an office there, and this is totally the other side of of town from where he lived. And I had no idea he was working out of his house for all those many years. No idea what that was about. We didn't go there, but we just took note of it that we felt like we were in Indra's net. For real at that point. Sure. So after a bit, we go to Tim's house and we've been discussing what we could afford to offer for this, that, and the other. And turns out Tim had five books, including exopsychology, neuropolitics, what does woman want, things like that. And he was happy to give us the rights to all five of them for what we were willing to pay for one. Mm. So we were just happy as, as clam. And eventually, of course, we did do all of those books, several of them rewritten from the originals and retitled mm. like neuropolitics became neuropolitik. Uh, right. <laughs> that sort of In, thing. Info psychology as opposed to exopsychology. Was that a, exactly. As Tim was changing his, his focus from outer space to computers. Yeah. I think what this woman want was the last one that, that we did. There was more. Anyway, Alan and I were very happy to have that. And we had a, had a room at one of the nice hotels near the airport. And it had a really nice restaurant in it. So we go to the, the restaurant that first night. And we're just ecstatic and drinking a lot. And we were probably a little more boisterous than we should have been. So turns out we come back the next night and the maitre d' at the front door says, 
I'm not sure that we can sit you. I said, really? Why not? Because when you were in here last night, you were spitting. We were spitting? Yes, you were spitting. So we ended up going somewhere else and had a weird weird meal somewhere else. It, it, the, the whole thing was very surreal. I'm thinking while you were talking that Game of Life and Intelligence Agents might have been a couple of the other books that came. Yeah, so those were the other two. Game of Life, I think, was the last one, and he literally rewrote that. I think I still have the original copy that he had marked up and changed oh. out and all of that. Somewhere in, in my files, I've got uh, the original that I think it was was uh, Game of Life. And yeah, he did some serious rework on a lot of those. In, uh, intelligence agents, I think we left pretty well as was. But the others got some rewrites. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, there was a lot involved in Game of Life. Well, that's uh, quite the story. So I've heard various things about working with Timothy Leary and his folks. Yeah, that was a hoot. <laughs> Include, well, what? Go ahead. Tim always lived right on the edge of financials. You know, he, he had no income in the normal sense of the word, and he relied on the kindness of strangers. Right. So he ended up, you know, doing some film work now and again with with people that liked him. He would borrow money. That's borrow in quote marks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were perfectly happy to help him in most any way we could, but there were limits. When he came to us and asked to, quote, borrow some money, so his wife could do a boob job, we thought better of it. Oh, mercy. Was it? <laughs> I, I just said, oh, mercy. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, we, we met some interesting people through Tim. I mean, Grace Jones, I think, was one of the more interesting people that we met at uh, dinner in a restaurant one time, Alan and I, Tim and she. Was, he certainly had a, a wide swath of interesting people around him. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I imagine just, well, I can't imagine, to be honest, what uh, what kind of things came across your desk as as the guy at Falcon Publications, the amount of crazy submissions. I Do you have any stories there? Oh, um, yes, I do. <laughs> any yes. any you'd like to share? Well, back in, in the uh, 80s and particularly in the during the 90s, we were publicizing that we were interested in submissions and there were certain books out there about publishers and people would go to those and say, ah, but so people actually would theoretically learn a little bit about what we would do, the kind of books that we would publish. Nonetheless, that didn't stop people from sending us children's books and cookbooks and science fiction and whatever. And we were getting something on the order of a hundred submissions a month. And wow. we were on publishing three or four titles a year, half a dozen, maybe. So we had to have something of a system to plow through those without having to actually read all of the submissions. Well, fortunately, as it turned out, much of the time we could tell just off the cover letter whether we wanted anything to do with the book. People would put together all kinds of beautiful packages. And when they did that, that would usually get more of attention from us than if they just wrote a crappy cover letter. But oftentimes we didn't have to go further. I mean, if they had a children's book, duh, not really that interested. But 
sometimes we'd get some that would stay in my mind. Here's one. We get a letter, and that was the totality of the submission, was this letter from some guy. And it was typed. It was typewriters in those days. And on what's called onion skin paper, if you remember it, people used to Mm -hmm. use those for copies. It was a thin, interesting paper. And the letter, and I believe I've got this verbatim. I'm thinking about writing a book on such such a topic. Bids start at $7,500. Submit to my attorney. Thanks very much. (laughs) That was was it. (laughs) Then we had a submission from a woman, a book about her son who had had some significant challenges. He had overcome things. It was, it was a, a book truly of, of heroism in the mental sense, the psychological sense. Well-written. I thought it was a wonderful book and our audience would like it, even though it was not all that along the same line. And we, after some weeks from we got it, we've read it through and looked at it, we were prepared to give her an offer on that book when a letter comes in from her saying, if you publish my book without my permission, I'm going to sue you. And that was the end of that book. Wow. Just out of nowhere, like unprovoked, like what? Totally unprovoked. She had sent us the book. We had just acknowledged that we have gotten it. Weeks pass as we are plowing through doing whatever we did. Submissions always had a back burner quality to them. We had, you know, current production always was on the front. So we'd get to the uh, submissions when we could. So some weeks, possibly even a few months passed. And then this pops up. Very strange. And as you would guess, because of the area that we're in, because we do metaphysics, they're called strange stuff. We get a lot of strange books. And most of it was crap. And that's why it was possible for us to go through it so quickly. We'd go through the 100, and if we found one that was worth responding to, that would be a success. Most of it was just utter garbage, poorly written. So many of the cover letters would say, I've written this book, and no other books have ever, ever been written on this subject before. And I turn my my chair and look at my bookshelf, and I say, one, two, three, four, five, six others that I have on my shelf in that same genre. Bye-bye. We're done with that. Yeah. One of the books we wanted to do back early was a collection that Regardi had put together of letters that he had gotten from his fans. Ah. And he titled it Liber Nuts. Yes. Because of possible copyright issues, lawsuits, and all of that, we didn't publish it. The, the The letters themselves were long gone. I wish I still had them. Nothing else to give me a chuckle now and again. But I certainly wouldn't be upset with with publishing it right now if we could. That's one of those great things to leak out onto the internet as a PDF or something like that, just for yeah. entertainment purposes. I can only imagine. Yeah, there's, there's some things that I like just putting out to the world, not uh, selling it, just here, put it on. We have a lot of things on our website that people can just look at for free, read for free. And I'm happy to do that. With, there's others that we're going to be doing soon. And that's the sort of thing that I would like to do that way, too. 
you've been busy. Uh, I know Antro um, has been producing here in his unfortunately final days, has been producing quite a bit. And you've got a new book from Phil Hine that came out recently. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, Querying the Cultures. And that was right in the midst of all these new pieces from Antro. I mean, when he was diagnosed with lymphoma, he very quickly put together last words. Right. Sent the manuscript to us, and we had it off to the printer in nine days. Oh, wow. That, I think, is our absolute fastest ever book from beginning to end. And at that time, we didn't know how long he had. He's lasted quite nicely, thank you. Yeah. The doctors apparently are, are saying, hmm, doing way better than we thought. But he's still in his final days, as far as I can tell. And we've been able to do other things, two new films that he did, another book. And it's just you know, moving along very, very quickly. We may be doing something with his films in terms of downloadable formats. They're huge. Uh, that's that's one of the problems. I mean, you're looking at you know, something like four gigabytes of download, which doesn't work so well on people's phones, but it looks like people want to mo watch movies on phones. I don't understand that. I have enough trouble watching movies on my television, but on a phone, no. Reading a book on a phone, no. But then I guess I'm old-fashioned. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, Antro hasn't necessarily promoted the use of the phone, but he does really emphasize headphones and how important the audio experience is to the movie watching. And, and that's something I've been noticing lately. But he's quite quite the creative powerhouse, especially he's here. In the film now. Yeah, I saw him. I, I, I visited him about a month ago and spent some time with him. And uh, he's doing really well. But he's often on medication, you know, I think like 10 days on, 10 days off. And so the yeah. off days are a little rough and the on days are a little overly energized, maybe. But uh, yes, he's, he's do that. Yeah, he's plowing right. He got another, like you said, another movie, another book. He's doing a, a movie release. Uh, I think it, that might be going on this weekend. So not slowing down. No, quite the opposite. He's moving at uh, at light speed. I'm having a hard time keeping up with him, but I'm doing my best. Yeah, well, good for you. Good for him. For me, there's there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, I've I've always liked Andre. We met back again in the 1980s when uh, Angel Tech. He had produced Angel Tech and published it and had success with it, and that's one of the things that certainly caught our attention. And so he came to, to uh, Sedona and sat down with Alan at the typesetter and were typesetting and retypesetting and re-retypesetting -re the book and mm. rewriting it on the fly. So we got to know each other, had some interesting experiences with his earth surrender rights and such. Mm. But then comes 2008 and Alan dies and Falcon Press is, shall we say, stolen out from under me. Yeah. Linda Miller, Alan's wife, widow, and I started the original Falcon Press with Alan's works, but we wanted to bring in lots of other things too. And we got hold about Antro. Well, Michael Miller had attempted to enlist Antro as well, but Antro decided to come with us, even though Miller 
had threatened lawsuits and all kinds of stuff. Mm. But as Andro put it so nicely, Michael Miller gives good phone. <laughs> he was not buying what Michael Miller yeah. said. So, but he was the very, very first author to sign with us. I think Phil was the second. And Phil Hunt. And and yeah. uh, I have never, ever forgotten that. This mm. is like 15 years later. And it's, I've got a very simple principle. Whatever Andro wants, I will do my damnedest to make it happen. Nice. I remember when all that went down. I mean, I mean, he, um, I guess you could say, memorialized that in uh, a movie, right? The to dream of falling upwards kind of covers yeah. the. Uh, oh no, that has nothing to do with that at all. <laughs> it's a totally, yeah. totally separate thing. <laughs> Alleg allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> right. Is there something about occult publishing houses where strange shit like that happens? Well, I just definitionally. It's a cult. <laughs> You're talking about people at the outer edges of things. You're talking about people who are themselves at the outer edges because they don't fit in anywhere else, who have ideas that don't fit in anywhere else, things that are out there. No different, I would say, than, than mainstream ideas, just as crazy. I mean, mainstream ideas are largely just as crazy as the occult ideas, but they just don't have the audience. Right. The mainstream ideas have mass acceptance. It certainly makes makes sense. I know Bob uh, Wilson had uh, various struggles with publishers over the years, just getting Illuminatus published or uh, his historical Illuminati series. I don't know the yeah. details, but he was always struggling with publishers on that one and finally gave up on the series out of frustration. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I never did volume four. Right. Right. And... Um, so on and so forth. Well, what else have I, what have I not asked you that you'd love to talk about today? Oh, there's a long, long list. We could probably <laughs> do several of these interviews, but one of the things that I don't think anyone's really asked me in interviews is what the plan is for the future. Yeah. But I have a very simple answer. I haven't a clue. Perfect. I have no idea what the future will bring. Antro's problems these days just came out of nowhere that happens all the time it's kept me very busy for the last few months right now i'm sort of taking a few days off before i get to the next thing but i just finished off a new book called tantra's tantra for all a sort of pretentious title i suppose in some sense but it really is it's a tantra book that not only tells you what Tantra is, but how to do it step by step, if you will, as much as you can do Tantra step by step. And it's a marvelous book. And I was doing that one kind of over the last couple of years. We've been working on that one. We have another one on Tantra coming out uh, probably next year called New, New Eon Tantra, which is more mm -hmm. oriented toward the polemic side of things. So that's as, as far as I can go. I think we have probably another uh, Tantra book coming from Bill Ein in, uh at the end of the year or thereabouts, too. But in between, there's all kinds of things that will be happening, and I've just stopped trying to predict. I try to take it as it comes. We do get submissions, but I have to say, most of them are not our cup of tea. Yeah, that's no great yeah. surprise. The thing I will say that I see more now than in the past is that they're far more illiterate than mm. ever. 
And I see that in mainstream as much as I do in the occult. It's no, there's nothing yeah. special about the occult area. Literacy is pretty well gone. I see that I have two teenage boys and I don't know that they're getting the same emphasis on writing. And when you look at, you know, social media posts and things like that, that's, they're almost like just blasts or headlines. It's not a lot of thought put into how to create a longer document that has a well thought out path. As much as I like being extemporaneous as we are today, when someone sends me an email Never a tweet, never a twit, never a, a text message, because I don't do any of those things and won't. This is my my phone right here, a flip phone. Nice. I've been in the computer field for 50-odd years, but uh, this is the phone I use, because I don't want a smartphone. I do not want text messages flying back and forth. I have no interest in it. Emails is as far as I've ever got. I like letters still. So I don't do them so much as I used to. But emails, I try not to respond to them too quickly. Let them sit around yeah. for a day or two before I respond to them. And I find that that I can compose a much better response by letting it percolate through whatever pieces of my brain have to spend some time at it. Yeah, I can appreciate that. But you can't do that with text messages where the the rule is if you don't respond to it in five seconds then you've insulted me right right or it's just gone stale well so you've got two tantra books coming out are are those just other than who are the authors there if you can can you share that yeah uh tantra for all is denny Sargent, who did okay. uh naga, naga magic and he's done some other books as well but uh that's the other he did with us and uh, New Eon Tantra is Gregory Peters, who did Yogini Magic with us uh, a couple of years ago. Okay. And you know, both of them are marvelous writers and certainly have some real serious experience. And you know, both of those, as well as Phil Hine, have a sort of incestuous relationship because they're all involved with Nath Tantrika as well as their own specialty areas, whether it's Yoginis or Nagas or the Lemic stuff. So they, they all bring their own views to the party. And it's it's really a joy to me to have a chance to see how all of this comes together. And they're writing pieces and parts for each other, prefaces and blurbs. And it, it's been a lot of fun. That's Yeah, so you're still kind of uh, just keeping that small stable of writers that's keeping the thing going, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, both Gregory and uh, or Brain, uh, they have come to us relatively recently, Denny and, and uh, Gregory both. So it's only in the last few years. And we're more than happy to have new people come to us because, well, sad to say, so many of our authors have died. Right. Joe Lashewski, gone. Alan Miller, gone. Regardi, gone. And some of the others, they're old like me. You know, Phil is not a young man anymore. Pete Carroll's not a young man anymore. Mm. And there's not that much new stuff coming out in the chaos magic area. Right. But uh, the focus seems to be now on some other things, like Tantra, which is great. But it's 
nice to have some younger people. And you know, Denny is younger. I think Gregory's an old fart as well, but I'm not sure about that. I lose track of these things. But it'd be great to have some some newer blood in the line. But it's going to have to be something that fits. It's going to have to be something that's well done. Right. I'm not a fan of publishing things that I consider crap. Let's see. What's the word I want to pick? Crap. Crap. A lot of it's crap. What about um, Jason Black? I don't know. He seems like another one of the elusive New Falcon characters that I don't know much about. Oh, <laughs> well, as Jason Black worked with us for quite some years as primarily a, an artist. Okay. He did a lot of the interior work for, and, and some covers, but mostly the interior graphic work on a number of titles. And he was an interesting artist. He was funny as hell. Died way too young. Okay. He and alcohol were way too close. And he wrote the, the comic books that you'll find, for example, in Undoing Yourself and Rebels and Devils. He wrote those. Okay. I still had them in, in color, but unfortunately those disappeared somewhere along the line. But at least we still have the black and white versions. He you know, worked with us on and off over a period of years and was a, a fascinating character. He spent a lot of time in Hollywood. He loved Hollywood. Hmm. And by Hollywood, I mean the sleaziest, scuzziest, scummiest parts of Hollywood. The dark underbelly. The dark underbelly. He took yeah. us, I think it was, was one of Alan's birthdays. We went off to a casino for a while. We went to a restaurant for a while, class act kind of places. And then we went to one of David's favorite bars in Hollywood. The name may or may not come to me. But it was truly a scuzz bucket bar par excellence. One of the many interesting characters in that bar was someone called Girl Dog. That was its name. Girl Dog? Girl Dog. Dog, okay. And he, she, or it, as you will, was they. a transgendered, transsexual, 300-pound prostitute. <laughs> one time I'm sitting, well, one time, the, the one time that I was in this bar, she's sitting next to me and decides she's going to give me a kiss. And that's one of the more horrifying experiences of my life. <laughs> but that, that was the sort of stuff that David liked. David being a David being his actual name, right? That's uh, Jason Black. Yeah, gotcha. And you mentioned he did some covers, and what I occurred to me, and I, I wonder if you can talk to this, but the cover of Prometheus Rising, you were involved with that. that Not I mean, by that me was... personally, but yeah, uh, Stan Slaughter, who I've lost track of, and I'd love to uh, know if he's still around. He was with. Uh, with Falcon from the earliest days. Interesting okay. character in and of itself. He did the work on Dogma Days, which is one of the mm -hmm. first books that Falcon ever did. And did a lot of the interior work in uh, the Complete Golden Dawn System of Magic. A lot of the graphics work for that. Undoing Yourself and other things. 
he was an interesting character in so many ways. He was an expert ballet skier, but he had no knees. He was born essentially without knees. So for him to walk, never mind ballet ski, was a conscious process all the time. He was also a great artist. I remember he made a pair of skis or decorated a pair of skis for me as a, as a gift one time. And boy, I wish I still had those, but I haven't been skiing in so long. That's yeah, like wow. run over on the slopes one day. But Stan did a lot of beautiful work. And after he left and literally disappeared, as far as I can tell, David Wilson came on the scene as Jason Black and kind of filled in uh, from there. Okay. Quite the cast of characters that have come through the doors there. Oh, yeah. We've had some some wonderful people working with us. And uh, Alan used to give people all kinds of opportunities and chances. But it would be in their lap. You know, I'm thinking about doing great. Do it. And if right. you do it and it's to our taste, we'll be happy to work with it and publish it. Well, surprise, surprise, that didn't happen very often. Because most people have no follow-through. But occasionally things would. Yeah, we're noticing. We just did a put-together a Bob on Crowley book. It'll hopefully be out here in a month or three. Outstanding. And yeah, we found a lost document that uh, Bob wrote. Not a full book, more like a essay that was written in 74 and showed up at Harvard University. Wow. And. Uh, We've kind of pieced together how it might have ended up at Harvard, but we really have no idea. Uh, I forget where I was going with that. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to see that there's still some pieces and parts of, of Bob's writings that have yet to hit the world. That's uh, where I was going, yeah. He would write a lot that just never made got published. And I think a lot of it was lost, or maybe it was an idea, and he talked about, I'm going to write this book, but he never wrote about it but we've had uh, the Starseed Signals now and this uh, mm -hmm. Crowley piece coming out. It'll be part of a greater book. I think Christina and, and you guys have done a terrific job with uh, Bob's books. Really delighted to see them in your lap. Certainly, I was very unhappy when they spent any time with Michael Miller. Yeah. But I'm glad that finally it, it got out of there and... It started very slowly, as I saw. You were doing books eh, a little here and a little there. And now it's been much more uh, of a torrent with new stuff and new people and new ideas. But I think that you're giving the material the attention that it could never have gotten, even from me. As much as I love Bob and his work, you've got a different investment in it. I'm very happy to see yeah. that stuff is still out there. Well, first, I would just say 90% of the effort really belongs, the credit belongs to Richard Rasa. Yeah. Uh, Christina had to go through quite a bit to get the rights free and clear of, of Miller and just get the trust squared away and things like that, more the legal side of things. And Ross has been producing the books. I, I don't know a thing about sales. We, we've started, so another guy, Chad Nelson, got involved with uh, Natural Law, which was a Lumpanics publication that was yeah. really a short, thin Don't pamphlet. Don't put a rubber book. on your willy. Don't put a rubber, right? He uh, added some more essays in with that and uh, handed it over to Rasa, and that's been released. And likewise, um, a, a 
team of us worked on this Crowley book and I handed it over to Rasa last week for the final public, you know, the proofing and the, all that good stuff, the final formatting. We'd like to do a few more of those. We'll just see how it goes, but I have high hopes for this Crowley book. Like I said, there was one unpublished document that we just discovered and we've added in five other pieces. And, uh, I, I, you know, Michael Johnson, I believe, he uh, did a glossary, perhaps, for one of the cosmic triggers. Excuse hmm. me. Entirely possible. His name seems familiar, but then it's a familiar name. He, uh, I guess you could call him a Robert Anton Wilson scholar, and we asked him to write something for the Crowley book, like an afterword, and we ended up with 100 pages uh, dissertation. Wow. Uh, it's... it's uh, and that's kind of how Michael rolls. So that, that'll be in the book as well. So I'm hopeful that'll be popular. But I really have no idea what, what kind of sales. Now. I don't even think Rasa knows much about the, the numbers. That's Christina's ballpark. But they're, they're keeping it going. And, and Rasa is very uh, meticulous about, like, like you said, producing an A-plus work versus a B-plus yeah. work. He's really putting a labor of love into it. And we, he's got a team of proofreaders that he works with and the whole ball of wax. So it's it's going. Well, I'm happy to have them out in as pristine a form as, as they can be. As we were discussing earlier, that's not what we ever aimed for. Sure. Uh, you've got a very different view and a very different investment in it. And I'm delighted that you do. Yeah, I mean, because that was one of Bob's dying wishes was for Christina to keep his books in print. So it's certainly, uh, it's a different investment, like you say. Yeah. Well, so you've got Entro's work, you've got Phil Hine, you've got a couple Tantra books coming out, and then it sounds like you just take it day by day and see what, what comes next. Is that? Pretty much, yeah. One of the things that I like is that I still do have a fair amount of free time. There is sometimes, like in these last months, great intensity as we're doing a whole bunch of new stuff and Andro's stuff just came down like a ton of bricks on our head and we just worked our way through it and built the wall. But right this minute, things are a little bit more relaxed and so I can do this interview with you. Yeah, well, I really Next week, week time. after, who knows? I mean, uh, Tantra for All should be out in the world in a matter of a couple of weeks. I'm just waiting on the proof copy, which may be even here today. And then it'll be out to the world. And then maybe I'll have a little bit more time to spend dicking around doing other things. Is there any plans to go back to some of the older Crowley, Rigardi stuff or any of those older Falcon titles? Well, that's an interesting thing you bring up. The uh, Crowley titles. Yeah. The Crowley titles, all the, the, uh, the rights now seem to be held by the OTO. Okay. A lot of things they managed to do with lawsuits and other things with us, the stuff that we had done back, oh, it's well over probably 20 years now. They bought the rights back. But as far as I can tell, they've never done anything with them. Mm. I don't see any of these books like Magic Without Tears, Laws for All. I don't see those books in the world anymore. Right. So they've got the rights, but they haven't done anything with it. As to the Regardi stuff, that is a little bit more tricky. Michael Miller has attempted and apparently has cornered that market to a degree. Mm. 
I'm not inclined to fight over that. But fair enough. Yeah. Uh, on that subject, I'm curious, do you know the Ciceros and what their relationship is in all this? Well, I've certainly had occasion to have some interaction with the Ciceros, not my favorite people. Fair enough. Uh, I won't won't say what Francis Regardi had to say about them. Fair, uh, yet they somehow have taken some of his legacy, it seems like. Well, shortly after Francis died, we knew exactly what was going to happen. And it did. So we've got different groups that have attempted to be the golden dog. And you got people in New Zealand, you got people in this country and elsewhere. And as we put it, all they're trying to do is get a monopoly on bleached bones. Mm. Say more about bleached bones. The golden dawn as a system right. has never been particularly my cup of tea. I'm not, I'm not a ceremonial ritual magic kind of guy. Never have been. Love Francis. He was a great man. I, he was a terrific human being. Funny as hell. Enjoyed being with him. But I knew him more as a friend than as a mentor as he was for Alan Miller or as a teacher as he was for so many people. And I was perfectly happy to publish his books, but there really wasn't a whole lot in there that was my cup of tea. Well, after he died, then we had a couple different groups setting up and they're coming to, to me, to Alan, to us, essentially looking for our endorsement so that they could be the monopoly on the Golden Dawn. And we weren't having any. Not, I'm not favoring you, not favoring you, because we don't give a damn, Scarlet. Don't care at all. And at one point, they still, one of the two groups started to get pushy. And I wrote them back in response to their email, email saying, a plague on both your houses. <laughs> now, you being probably more literate than most may even have an idea where that line comes from. William Shakespeare, thank you. Romeo and Juliet. But as far as I could tell from the next response, uh, somebody didn't quite understand where it came from, not that it matters, because his response was, you shouldn't curse a master magician. Ooh. Ooh. And that was the end of my conversation with that guy and anybody else about that. And whatever they're doing on the Golden Dawn, fine. I don't care. I'm playing with their houses. So in a sense, it was like Israel Regardi was the uh, legacy holder for the Golden Dawn. And when he passed, people fought over his legacy because that was the, the Golden Dawn legacy in a way. Yeah. And of course, he knew that he if the Golden Dawn was to continue after him, he would have to sow seeds here and there. Right. And so he's had, you know, he worked with, with Alan, he worked with the Ciceros, he worked with a number of other people. And hopefully some of them would grow and others would wither and die and others would just become a jungle. And you know, that that's kind of where it's gone. But I don't see as best as I can tell, that the Golden Dawn is really doing all that much. I often wonder about a lot of those organizations and where they're at today. And But it seems like there's an online presence here and there. 
But yeah, here we are. It takes us full circle back to the Reikian stuff. Totally different area, but yeah, it kind of disappeared. And and in part, I think the Reikian stuff disappeared because Reich himself had structured it so that when he was gone, it was pretty damn hard for anyone to get into it. One of his mm. requirements, for example, was you had to be an MD who trained with us. Right. Otherwise, forget it. Uh, Regardi, who was a Reich and therapist himself, didn't learn from Reich, but learned from somebody else. I think the name was Kirk Arudo or something like that. I never quite got it right. Who may have worked with Reich or some, worked with someone who worked with Reich. Anyway, that's the lineage, which yeah. in, in, in occult worlds means so much. Lineage is all. Otherwise, you're not real. Okay. Seems to me a wonderful scam, but what the hell do I know? The the, the, the Reichian people, by setting it up that way, pretty well guaranteed it was all going to end. Of course, Reich never wrote down or did in any way communicate to the world what his actual techniques were about. Only people like Lowen or Regardi or Allen would know some of these things because they were taught face-to-face. And that's why we came out with so much of the uh, undoing material over time, starting with undoing yourself with energized meditation and other devices back in 82, 84. And several of his books after that, because, well, all we had was books. But it was very unsatisfactory because trying to describe these techniques, these exercises and practices versus showing them is a totally different thing. And eventually we turned to audios because we could do those. And finally, videos came out. And that was the final final phase of it, was to actually demonstrate what some of the stuff looked like. And you know, there's still a lot of people out there who are interested in that kind of material. Sometimes they ask me, is there any group around that I can talk to other people I can interact with? Sadly, I don't. And if yeah. anyone, oh, I suppose it's me. <laughs> there was one group, but it disappeared uh, off the internet just a few months ago. Luciferian Society. Okay. And a uh, number of the people who were on that board, if you will, were interested in Hyatt's work. But as time went on, it seemed so, as so many of those things do, it just kind of dribbled away until... Comes and goes, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a little depressing to end on, but I've kind of run out of gas here. I don't know if you have any final words for us. Well, I'm just hoping to stay around long enough to see the gulags come back. (laughs) Say more about the gulags? Or maybe not. Well, one of the things that, that Alan and I spent a lot of time discussing over the years was whether there's hope for the human species or not. And for many, many years, I was of the opinion that, yes, with good education and good rational thinking and good logic, we can transcend a lot of the crap that we seem to have inbuilt in our brains. Alan was coming from a totally different side. Nope, no hope for us at all. Mm. Makes no difference how well educated you are how logical you are, how rational you are. You are still dominated by forces that you can't do anything with except in rare instances. 
And that's, of course, what the undoing stuff was about, is maybe for those few, few people, remember, he was an elitist. Hyatt was pure elitist, that gotcha. there's only a tiny number of people that can do this kind of work. And, you know, he wasn't alone in those kinds of issues as well. Gurdjieff, Rajneesh said essentially the same thing. 95% of you are food. 5% of you will get something out of this. They were very clear about it. Well, as time went on, I had little choice but to come around to his system because just by observation, it was clear the human species was fucked. And I still hold that. But Alan wanted to see it happen. And mm. so one of the great tragedies of his life was that he died before, before these last few years where we have sunk deeper and deeper into the hellhole and the mire. And we seem to be at the cusp of turning into a new dark age. Mm. And so when I say I'm waiting for the gulags to come back, that's what I mean. Fair enough. If perhaps after they come back, maybe I'll die after it. Maybe I'll find Alan somewhere in the other world on the other shore, if such things exist, and I can tell him it happened. Wish you could have seen it. It was fun while it lasted. Hmm. Maybe I'm naive. That we almost ended on. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> maybe I'm naively optimistic, but I I uh, I hope it doesn't come to that. I tend to think the world is changing faster than we know how to deal with, and it just seems like a shit show. But I'm hopeful we'll get somewhere. Well, people like you know Tim Leary thought it was going to happen by getting off the planet. Yeah. And people like Elon Musk are certainly of that same opinion. And if the species is going to survive, I'm pretty sure that that's what's necessary. Not sufficient, but necessary. Because for us to become, shall we say, more than we are, requires that we be essentially re-engineered. Our brain is fucked up big time. Its structure is bad. The way it works is bad. We've got to do some serious genetic modifications, if we will, or, or implants of, of computers or something to change literally how our brains work. And it's going to be really tough to do that on this planet where there's such a mass of people more than happy to destroy that work and destroy any people who actually come out that way. Because after all, they're a threat. So hopefully we can get off the planet. Small numbers of people who have this kind of idea that, yeah, we want to re-engineer the human species into something different, something better, something more functional, something more effective. Great. But I don't think we can do it on this planet. So that's why I say getting off yeah. is necessary but not sufficient. But you know, we had the tools now to get off the planet. We're right at that edge. We have the tools to modify ourselves right at the edge of that too. So it's a wonderful confluence. Is it going to happen or will the gulags come back first? Maybe we can escape the gulags on to the moon. Which brings me to Robert Heinlein's Moon is a Harsh Mistress. If you haven't read that one, I recommend right. it. That's a fun one. I love that one. Yep. One of my favorites. Well, well, wow. I could keep going, but I think we're going to have to pull the plug on this one. Nick, it's I think been so a pleasure. Too. All right. Yeah, it's been fun.
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Maybe we can do this again sometime. I'd be happy to anytime. I got stories. That concludes the episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Nick Tharcher for taking the time to chat. Thank you to Christina Pearson of the Robert Anton Wilson Trust and Richard Rasa of Flaritas Press. And thank you to Ryan Reeves for putting it all together. The next regular episode, releasing on the 23rd of June, will feature Mariana Pinson and Chow Surfing and the Eight Colors of Magic. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas. <laughs> <laughs>